That monkey's name is Crystal, and Crystal is a megastar. She <laughs> can do anything. I asked the trainer, I said, has there ever been anything you couldn't teach Crystal to do? And he said, with this look of extreme pride, nothing. This monkey can do anything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2023 Oscars race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall. On this week's episode, Oscar nominees and stars of The Fablemans, Michelle Williams and Judd Hirsch, join us later. But first, we are going to dive deep into the Best Director race. And joining me to do that are EW Senior Writers Joey Nolfi and Maureen Lee Linker. Hello to you both. How are you? I am great. How are you? Fantastic. Joey, how's it going? Oh, it's just, you know, the thick of Oscar season, so couldn't be better. Yeah, we do have a lot going on, that is for sure. Uh, so so let's get into this. Actually, before we get into what I have already teased, um, I have to offer a little congratulations on behalf of uh, certainly myself, I'm going to assume my guest today, um, Viola Davis on achieving EGOT status at the Grammy Awards. Um, I do want to play uh, her speech from the pre-televised ceremony for everyone to listen to, so check that out. I wrote this book, I wrote this book to honor the six-year-old Viola, to honor her, her life, her joy, her trauma, everything. And it has just been such a journey. I just EGOT. And thank you, Harper's Collins. Harper's Collins, Lavelle Levette, you are the, you epitomize sister friend, and really, to everybody who was a part of my story, and the best chapter yet, my loves, Julius, Genesis, you are my life, and my joy, you are the best chapter in my book, thank you. Uh, love that so much. I love that she's her own hype woman. I just EGOT. Um, that that was uh, such a, a great moment there. She is now the 18th person to EGOT, joining a list that includes uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Jennifer Hudson, John Legend, Mel Brooks, Audrey Hepburn, Rita Moreno. Um, after her Oscar snub this year, I'm sure that had to feel quite good to her. Um, what did you guys think of that moment? Oh, I was so excited for her because I was definitely disappointed that she did not get nominated for the Woman King, as I think many people were. Um, and honestly, there are a few people I can think that of that are more deserving of an EGOT than Viola Davis. I mean, she is one of the finest actors of our generation yeah. and her talent transcends mediums. And so I'm thrilled that she's received that recognition from all of those voting bodies. And um, I think we need to maybe come up with some more awards to give her or she could write something. We could give her a Pulitzer. Yeah. I don't know. She'll be she could be a PGOT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Add that on to the front there. All right. Well, let's talk about today's guest, Michelle Williams and Judd Hirsch. Uh, this is uh, The Fablemans. It is Steven Spielberg's semi uh, 
It is Steven Spielberg's semi-autobiographical film about his upbringing and his uh, early-in-life passion for filmmaking, thanks to his parents. Now, Michelle plays Mitzi, the mother to young Sammy. She is um, she's a very gifted pianist, um, a dancer. She probably could have been a star herself. And Judd Hirsch plays their Uncle Boris, who we see for, gosh, I think it's less than 10 minutes of the movie, but uh, for a very important moment um, between Boris and Sammy. Sammy. Now, Joey, you, uh, of course, have been tracking the award season uh, all along as our resident expert here. Michelle started strong. She faded a bit. Uh, she did not get a SAG nomination. Um, and it started to seem like her fifth Oscar nomination might not happen, but she got it. So what do you think carried her through? Yeah, she was Valerie Cherish on Oscar nominations <laughs> morning. I got it. Um, <laughs> So what do I think carried her through? Um, I, I, I think it's probably, in all honesty, the quality of the performance here and the fact that the movie itself is so popular, but, um, especially as you know, Hollywood loves tales about Hollywood legends. But uh, I think her real mistake here was going lead. I think that's the thing that really hurt her um, and is the reason she didn't get the SAG nomination. I think that if she had gone supporting and campaigned there, she would have been a lock to even win, maybe. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that what has carried her through is the strength of the performance and the overall film itself. I think if this was just, you know, a one-off year where the film itself didn't have so, so much traction in other categories, I think Michelle absolutely would have sat this race out, but, uh, because the film built around her is so strong, it stands on its own and she's kind of getting swept up in that, I think, despite being in the wrong category. Yeah. And in terms of the, uh, you know, her nomination in the category, it, it's interesting because yes, I, I agree with you. She is a supporting actress here, but, uh, I, I, I think she and many others are looking at as well, but she's the lead female in the movie, which I get. Um, but, you know, some have said to me, um, you know, that that she doesn't necessarily have expectations to win, but it almost felt like if she didn't at least get nominated, that that would have been um, essentially feeling like she let down Steven Spielberg. Um I don't think he would have looked at it that way, but, um, you know, from that perspective, you know, uh, she and Judd, of course, felt very um, honored uh, that he asked them to be part of, you know, his very personal story. Um, Maureen, what stands out to you most about both of their performances? We can start with Michelle's. I think what makes Michelle Williams and Judd Hirsch's performances stand out is the fact that they really toe the line between this sort of fantastical, surreal quality and reality, because a lot of people have sort of painted The Fablemans as this very sentimental film in terms of Spielberg looking back at his childhood and why he became obsessed with film. But I actually think it is not that at all. I think that it's very clear-eyed and unflinching in this presentation of the adults in his life and how complicated and messy their lives were and the ways in which film and art have challenged and shook up his life as opposed to enrich it and, and the difficulty of living a creative life. And I think that Michelle and Judge are, Judd's performances are the linchpins for that aspect of the filmmaking because in Michelle Williams' case, she's this very sort of ethereal, otherworldly creature, but she is still his mother and this like rock in his life. And then on Judd's side, he's this force of nature who barrels in his uncle Bar Boris, who used to work in the circus. Um, 
and totally shakes up Sammy and his life and then leaves. <laughs> um, and so I think that they are, th- those performances are what a lot of the film's effectiveness hinge on. Mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to point out about Judd Hirsch, I mean, a lot has been made of his age and how he's one of the oldest nominees, but he also would be the third shortest performance ever to win if he were to win. Um, The shortest still belongs to Beatrice Strait for Network. Um, She had five minutes and two seconds of screen time. And before that, it was Gloria Graham for The Bad and the Beautiful, who had nine minutes and 32 seconds of screen time. Judd Hirsch is around 10 minutes. So he he might be tied with Gloria Graham or a little behind her. But um, I always find it interesting when these like very, very brief performances are singled out because they make such an impact in a very small amount of time. And and his certainly falls into the top end of those over Oscar history. Well, and you know, the thing here too is that um, kind of, kind of to the point of what you're saying is that there's something that I got in watching this movie that I don't think translated when I read about it. I don't think that did it justice. Um, so as we kind of, you know, take a look at all of Steven Spielberg's work, really. Where do each of you think this one kind of ranks for you? I'll I'll say personally. We don't we don't have to get into you know all the reviews and and box office and all that stuff. But um, you know, a, as a viewer of his work, where does it land for you? I think it stands out as one of my favorite Spielberg films, just because I think that it, it, he's gone to new places and made new creative decisions that I've never seen him make before, just yeah. because he is so closely tied to the story. I mean, I feel like even when you're a director who's reached the status of somebody like Steven Spielberg, when you approach material that is not your own personal story and not inspired by your own life story, you make objective choices sometimes. And I think that this really saw him making very subjective choices that he wouldn't have made when directing another script or screenplay that was based on something not directly uh, inspired by his life. Um, thinking of the way that that whole scene is shot with Michelle Williams dancing in front of the car. Um, I mean, I've never seen something like that in a Spielberg film before. And the last frame of this movie is one of the most perfect endings I've ever seen in any movie in history. And it's just, I I think that he felt fully at home, at ease, fully comfortable in his art and telling his story. He knows his story well enough that this just, it, it, it doesn't even fall into a similar category of being a Spielberg film, mm-hmm. even though it is like the most Spielberg film of them all by definition, yeah. because it's a story. So I think that yeah. it it's, it's in a different class. Yeah. There was, there was uh, speaking specifically about that, that last scene, but you know, so many other parts do. There was such a playfulness about it, even in the midst of, um, you know, dealing with his his parents and, uh, you know, that that bullying at school um, and the, you know, the the racism, the bigotry that he uh, felt there. Um, sorry, back to you, Maureen. Um, where do you think it lands for you? Oh, I was going to say it's also one of my all-time favorites. It's certainly my favorite of his work in the 21st century, without question. Um in some ways, it feels like a spiritual successor to E.T. to me. Like it takes the kids and the, sh- the fractured family of that story and sort of tells us how Stephen got to E.T. Like I, th- I feel like it's sort of the blueprint for E.T. You understand how Sammy Fableman becomes the man that makes E.T., which I feel like is a perfect movie in a lot of ways. Um 
And I totally agree with Joey. I think, you know, he has done so many remarkable things in his career and made masterpieces like Schindler's List and box office hits like the Indiana Jones films and Jaws. But I think there's something about where he is in his career now that he only could have made this movie at this point, that he wasn't willing to be this honest uh, and this open and vulnerable until this stage of his life. And it's really paid off in the work we're seeing. And I think it's this fascinating mix of biography and a love letter to filmmaking, but also an interrogation of cinema and his obsession with it. And um, I agree. I mean, I certainly he's not planning on retiring. And I certainly hope this isn't his last film. But if it were like that final shot, what a signature on a career to close things out on. It's perfect. And it, it it's like I could see a version where it would have pushed things too far and been too cheeky and too cute. But it just barely holds itself back from that. And therefore, it's just like, marvelous and wonderful and and him finally interjecting himself into the story that he has been telling in yeah. that last moment yeah well right it made it inspired me to want to go back and watch all of his movies to uh i don't want to spoil anything for folks who haven't seen it but see how that moment is actually integrated into uh, his other movies. Um, but anyway, all of that said, uh, I, I think we're in agreement. His work here as a director is fantastic. And I believe he has said that, um, you know, his, uh, his co-screenwriter here and someone he works with a lot, Tony Kushner is the one who really pushed him to finally, uh, make this movie, tell this story. So, uh, thanks to Tony for that. Um, so Spielberg is of course, one of the five best director nominees. He's joined in the category by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert for everything, everywhere, all at once. Martin McDonough for the Banshees of Inna Sharon, Todd Field for Tar and Ruben Ostland for Triangle of Sadness. Those are all of the same folks nominated uh, at the Directors Guild, except swap Ruben for Top Gun Mavericks, Joseph Kaczynski. Uh, so having said that, there were really between the two, um, between the Oscars and DGA, six directors in contention. Um, but do either of you feel like there's someone in particular who should have been on Oscars list. I know, you know, this season we've been talking about James Cameron for Avatar The Way of Water and Baz Luhrmann for Elvis, Sarah Polly for Women Talking, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front certainly had a, a, an incredible showing at the Oscars. Maybe Edward Berger could have or should have been on the list. Um, for me, I'm always going to be pro uh, getting a female director in there if possible. And there were a lot of great options yeah. this year. You mentioned Sarah Polly for Women Talking. There was also Gina, Gina Prince Bythewood mm -hmm. for The Woman King. And I would have loved to see one of them uh, make it into that top five because they're doing fantastic filmmaking. Women Talking got nominated for Best Picture. Um, and so. And writing. It, yeah. So it's a little crazy to me that neither of them are in that mix. And it's definitely disappointing. And you have to wonder if the Academy was partially like, well, women have won the past two years, so we don't need to include them this year. I would hope not. But right. But you never know. Um, yeah. So that would be mine. But I. I hope Steven Spielberg wins like maybe I'm rooting for him in that regard. Yeah. Joey, what are you feeling? Yeah, I just I don't think that there's necessarily that. I mean, of course, like we, we all love to see female directors succeed, but I don't think there's that sort of group think going on in the Academy. I think we yeah. even saw this in a lot of the criticism with who was nominated for uh, the, the whole Andrea Riseborough thing. Like there's not a 
the academy is literally 10,000 people. It's there, there's no group thing going on where somebody is saying like, oh, we're women have won the past two years. So we're purposely not going to vote for a woman this year. That just doesn't happen. And I think that if you look at the statistics, like just the industry across the board was not voting for Sarah Polly and Gina Prince Bythewood. Um, across the board. I mean, it just, it just wasn't happening. That's not to say that they're not deserving. I just think that those films, I think the, the, what we have to look at is not necessarily what the Oscars are voting for, but the factors in the industry surrounding those films that cause them to not be on the radar the same way that the other films are. Um, cause I don't think that anybody, at least the majority of the Academy is voting in a way where they're thinking that we're purposely trying to exclude someone mm-hmm. as, as even though it's unfortunate and they're super deserving. Like I loved the woman King 10 times more than, you know, half of these movies on the best picture list, but it just like the industry just wasn't supporting it the same way. So I think the issue is there yep. versus what the Academy is actually like actively choosing to do and what they're not choosing to do. They're just responding to the, you know, the climate around them. And that's where the problem is. But for Best Director, I think the big omission here, um, at least in the same category, like the, the the industry just wasn't supporting it in the way that I thought they would have at the beginning of the season was James Cameron um, for right. Avatar, just because it was such a technical achievement, the same way that the first movie was. So I was a little surprised to see even the DGA not give him recognition there. Um, but yeah, I think that this is going to come down to um, Spielberg or... I mean, right now I'm predicting the Daniels for Mm -hmm. everything, everywhere, all at once. I just think that that movie, the way that that has succeeded and risen through, I mean, it endured throughout the summer. It became A24's top grossing film of all time. And it is, has still endured based on its quality alone. Like nobody could have predicted that that movie was going to be a hit. And I think that the industry sees it as something that uh, signals it's a different kind of film than we've ever seen win best picture. So I think the industry is collectively very excited about it. And I think that the directors are voting for something that, yeah, it's just, it's, it's unlike anything we've ever really seen in the Oscar race before. So I think they're going to want to lift that up. Joey, that's a very astute comment because I mean, the truth of the matter is that these Academy members do not have time to do their jobs as as right. the careers that they hold yeah. that got them a place in the industry <laughs> and to see, I mean, we, our job is to see everything and we don't have time to see everything. So I can't <laughs> imagine people who have to be on set, however many months, weeks out of yeah. the year, having time to see all this stuff. And I just don't think they saw women talking and the woman King. And so it's not necessarily uh, mm-hmm. passing judgment on the quality of either of those right. films so much as, yeah there wasn't the number of eyes on it that there needed to be to, to get them in that slot. Yeah. I think they dismissed them. And uh, at least for the woman King, like a lot of people went to see that at the theater, but that was just like casual audiences. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that for whatever reason, the, the bigger issue is just like examining how the industry maybe sort of dismissed it instead of actually giving it a chance. Mm-hmm. So and those are the things we all, uh, I mean, I think, gosh, I mean, I, I feel like we're all doing our part. There are lots of other publications, of course, that are trying to, you know, uplift those uh, movies that, um, you know, we want voters to be paying attention to as well. Um, so, of course, very unfortunate they did not make the cut. Uh, and uh, voting will take place in just a couple weeks, and we will know on March 12th who takes home the trophy. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. Coming up right after this quick break, it is the Fableman star, Michelle Williams. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to The Awardist. She has the great honor of portraying a fictionalized version of Steven Spielberg's mother in The Fablemans. EW's Clarissa Cruz spoke with Michelle Williams. Have a listen. I wanted to congratulate you because I was so blown away by your performance in The Fablemans. I saw it at TIFF um, with everyone else, and I just thought you were fantastic. So tell me, yeah, yeah, tell, tell me what, what attracted you to this, this role? Uh, everything. I mean, it's like beyond a dream come true. Mm-hmm. I don't. I still don't really know how to contextualize it in terms of my life and my career and um, what it means to me, what it meant to me, what it continues to mean to me uh, to have been a part of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, how how did I mean, it's it's loosely based on Stephen's childhood. And, um, you know, how did he approach the role with you of Mitzi? Because it, it was so, um, you know, it's, it's based on his, his mother. I mean, so there's a little bit of pressure there, I can imagine. Um, but, but what was the, the collaboration like with Stephen as, as far as direction goes? He opened his family history to me and he opened his heart to me. And he gave me unlimited access uh, to his experiences with her, his memories of her, his desire, his wishes for her, his relationship with her. Um, he let me get to know her through him. And um, the more that I knew her, the more I wanted to know her. She was just one of those people whose spirit fills a room mm-hmm. and I miss her <laughs> still. I can't imagine uh, how much he misses her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I found so touching in the movie is, is that sort of idea of, you know, he has a, so much love for his mother. Um, yet she's also a very complicated woman who makes choices that, at the time, um, I can imagine would be vilified by some people, um, but but they but he sort of finds the humanity in her, you know, from the point of view of a son. But how how did you sort of unlock that in in her character? Because you love her, and, and but she, but she's also you know she also makes choices that 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 are controversial, I guess, at the time. I think that's what moved me so much. The very first time I read the script was. My God, this, they let this woman live. <laughs> they let this woman live in every word of every scene of every page that she is on. She is having a full-blooded human experience. She is not limited to her role as his mother. She is a woman in her own right and i think and that's what just blew me away mm-hmm. was what a feast they had written for her um and that she is allowed these 
careening passions and emotions without judgment, which I find to be incredibly honest and incredibly lifelike. And I kind of couldn't believe my eyes at what she, how much she got to express of what it felt like for her to be alive. You know, kind of from her own point of view. It's from Stephen's point of view. It's it's the movie about him and his childhood. But she's allowed full personhood. She's uh, allowed a full range of expression, even if it's through his lens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally through his lens. Um, yeah. I, I mean, as a mother, you know, watching watching this, you know, uh, one thing that her character I think portrays really well is that idea of identity sort of being subsumed by your children because it's just sort of like the day-to-day of taking care of children and the idea of losing yourself because of because of that. And I, I, I'm wondering, like, what you brought to, to that and whether that feeling is something that, that, that you were in a meaningful way trying to express here. You know, I think what struck me about her is that she experiences all of these things fully. You know, she's... I don't think that she feels a diminishment in her life because she has so many children. Mm-hmm. I think she experiences her children fully and each of her children fully and individually mm-hmm. and can experience great longing. And I don't think it was an either or situation. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the children were keeping her from realizing herself i think she was fully realized as a mother and i think that she wanted to fully realize herself as a woman and the two things didn't have to be in conflict with each other Mm -hmm. which is such a trailblazing way for her to have thought and acted Mm -hmm. at that time Yes. She maintained so many great passions and loves, and she maintained a great passion and love for Stephen's father. They, yeah. you know, that wasn't the end of their story either. Mm-hmm. They found each other later in life. She was able to, she was just one of those people who could fit it all in. And mm-hmm. she could have passionate relationships with her children, with her piano, with her pets, mm-hmm. with her clothes, <laughs> with her husband, with her boyfriend. She could do it all. Yeah. And she did it all. And she wanted it and she fought for it. Um, which is why everybody misses her so much. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I really, I really thought that you brought, you really conveyed that, and you made her someone that that people love. Um, and I, I mean, and 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 you know, on on a more, you know, on a lighter note, like you're mentioning the pet. <laughs> what was yeah, it? Right? Like, what, was, what was it like working with that with that with the monkey? That monkey was incredible. <laughs> we are still telling stories about that monkey. My God. <laughs> That monkey's name is Crystal, and Crystal is a megastar. She (laughs) can do anything. Um, That was so much fun. (laughs) We were all so reverent around the monkey. Everybody, um, you know, when when animals or babies are on set, everything just sort of takes this really hushed tone because uh, you don't know what's going to happen or how they're going to respond or if they're going to be comfortable mm-hmm. and crystal crystal could handle anything 
you know, they, I asked the trainer, I said, has there ever been anything you couldn't teach Crystal to do? And he said, with this look of extreme pride, nothing. <laughs> this monkey can do anything. And she's been in the business for 25 years. Like she's, and she's, she can tell how she feels about herself when she completes one of the tricks that she's <laughs> learned. She, she's amazing. She taught my baby how to um, do high five. <gasps> Um, yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. And, and was she good at taking direction from Steven? Well, <laughs> she takes, you know, she has a, she, her primary relationship is with her trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the one who, uh, interprets the direction. <laughs> right, right. Um, because we're all so starstruck by her. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, what, one thing that I noticed about your character um, is, is sort of like the role of, I guess, her relationship to cooking, um, and um, and yeah, it's sort of it can be fraught sometimes. Um, and I, I've I've seen interviews uh, or, or listened to interviews where you were talking how you you like to cook in real life. Um, did you bring? Did you have to dial any of your and skill at that um, dial back back to to play Mitzi? I'll tell you what I really want to to take on board is how she didn't do the dishes. <laughs> um, what a genius. Yeah. No dishes, just to tie everything up in a paper tablecloth when you're done with dinner and then get back to the festivities. And she just hated to clean. Yeah. She just hated to clean. And she figured out how not to clean. Again, I mean, that other lack of convention but you can see, I think you can see on the faces, on the face of the, um, uh, grandma, on yeah. Adasa, you yeah. know, that she, she was inventive enough to come up with the idea and she was brave enough to flaunt it <laughs> and, um, and empowered enough to live it by her husband. Yeah. So there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot to love. There's a lot to take from it. There's a lot of, you know, originality and vivacity in how she raised that family. And that's certainly something that I, you know, would like to bring into my own. Yeah. Well, that, that tablecloth idea is pure genius. Um, it's pure genius. Pure genius. <laughs> I, 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 who I, cares what the table looks like? <laughs> just care who you're eating with and what the food tastes like. Yeah. So... Genius. Yeah. Was that a move from Stephen's mom? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, I think it's, I would have to, Stephen would have to be the one to speak to it, but I think it's much more than, than loosely based. I think it's tightly based. <laughs> totally. Um, well, as I said in the beginning of, of this interview, um, I mean, there was an amazing reception at TIFF. Um, how did how did you feel? You know, once every once everyone saw it on screen, like how did you feel um, in that room? Um, you know, in, in that moment. I mean, the whole thing has just been heart swelling from the moment he called me. I don't know how long ago that was. A year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So from the moment he called me to the moment that the movie is a completed thing that people are seeing uh it all just feels a little too good to be true but yeah and I then guess it is. yeah and then winning the audience award which is a major award season precursor i mean are you are you ready for that ride <laughs> you know the the 
the feeling between all of us is so genuine and loving that the thought of being able to see each one of these people again and again over the next series of months is makes me feel like warm inside i can't i i want i was bereft when this movie was over so to be reunited with these people again and again i'm very grateful um, well, lastly, you know, from one uh, iconic role, uh, iconic role of Stephen's mom to another, um, you you played Marilyn, obviously, to acclaim in My Week with Marilyn. Is there anything that you've learned from playing such an iconic role? Playing Marilyn for me was was the beginning of a of a certain kind of working, and playing Marilyn, uh, I think, is the thing that set me on the path that I've been walking down for the last 12 years since then. I was 30 when I played that role. And so everything that I'm doing now for me, I can trace back to her. Amazing. Well, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate it. Good, good luck with the, with the upcoming baby. And um, thank you. And thank you for making the time. I, I, I really loved your performance in this movie. Thank you so much. It really gives me such a thrill. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, happy to talk to you. So thank you. Well, I think she is certainly deserving of the attention for her work here. Of course, up for debate uh, whether she's in the right category, but uh, she turns in another incredible performance. Michelle Williams, always reliable for that. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. We have one more segment coming up for you. It is Maureen's interview with the Fableman star, Judd Hirsch. The Awardist will be right back. Welcome back to The Awardist. As Maureen told us, he is on screen for right around, perhaps just a little bit less than 10 minutes, but it is an impactful performance. So right now, enjoy her conversation with Judd Hirsch. Judd, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, pleasure to be here. What is it? What is it we need? What is it we need to know? <laughs> well, I want to start by asking um, how this project came your way. It's such a... Uh, rush of energy in the middle of this beautiful little film. Yeah. Well, you know, most of my answers to most of the questions were, I don't know. Um, because I really didn't know. (laughs) I mean, why Mr. Spielberg called me, why he thought of me for this part and, uh, why I'm supposed to do it and why this character does what he does. So everything was a mystery. It was almost like, um, um, hearing a voice, which says you will be, the man, the person who made me become a director. Now, mm. what do I know about that? I hadn't read the script yet. That's all he said. That's all he said to me. And I, I was sort of like nodding all the time. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And? Well, he's an uncle of my mother. And? Uh, he might have been Ukraine. He might have been Russian. He might have, in other words, there was a lot of might. And I said, okay, uh, and then read the script. <laughs> <laughs> no. With all of that wonderful background, <laughs> I read the script and said, boy, I'm telling you something. I got no help with this one. <laughs> because uh, all, all, all the things, now I, I know that uh, Tony Kushner wrote uh, with Stephen, um, and I could, um, I, could, I could tell that Tony had a lot to do with this particular part of mine. And uh, so um, knowing the kind of guy he is, I thought, well, 
Um, he's going to want this to be, uh, you know, kind of real that nobody would know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, a, a, it's, it's like, it's like uh, I'm going to play an oracle, a man who, who somehow is brought in. You can't, you don't even know why or how or when. He's brought in to do something to Steven Spielberg as a child, <laughs> as, a, as a teenager, and then leave. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> so, so the effect that I'm going to have is the only thing that I could possibly think of. Now, really, the man's talking about himself a lot. I think he probably didn't, didn't ever, hardly ever saw this man. Because I asked, I said, well, how, how, how does he sound? And he said, oh, uh, we hardly understood a word he said. So I thought, okay, <laughs> let's start that way. But then with that wonderful material, that wonderful um, uh, dialogue, or I should say monologue, I present my life in just a few minutes to this poor guy who has to uh, be inundated with things that he has absolutely no connection to. You know, my having been in the circus and my having been in the in the theater and having had such a difficult time in, in, in the family because he had to get out to do it. So the whole scene is, in other words, to give him an example of what might happen to him. Because I remember there was a key word in it uh, uh, toward the end of the scene where I said, look at me, mm. look at this. <laughs> this is what I had to do. You know, nobody, nobody wanted me to do this. I had a tough time in my life. I had to get out. I had to do what art in me was telling me to do. And that's probably the theme of the entire movie. Yeah. Not just my scene. That, that, that this implanted thing that from whenever, birth or whatever, this thing called the art that makes you do what you have to do is in all of us. And, uh, and, and the example is in the family, right? His mother was extremely uh, talented and didn't do it. Mm. And uh, that's the history. And, and, yeah, and, and the one who was responsible for that was her mother, which is my sister. Mm. So, I, so I, knew that, uh, I, I knew that particular thing that happened in the family. That's why they were scared when they, when they saw me coming. <laughs> well, playing the man who, you know, is like a hurricane coming through this family's life in and out and is mm. the one who, as you said, basically inspired Stephen to become a director. No pressure. Um, how? Well, yeah, well, the word, the word ins- I don't know how you use inspired from a frightened man, <laughs> from a frightened boy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like swooshed up by, you know, Stephen likes to say that this is the uh, w- w- one of his only films that it d- doesn't have um, an alien in it or uh, an animal or a robot or whatever, or a dinosaur. And I said, no, I'm that. I love that. <laughs> it does include one. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Well, with only having that monologue and not a lot of backstory, did you sort of approach it as a, a messenger in a Greek drama? Or how did you break it down for yourself to make sense of it since uh, you weren't getting a lot from Stephen? <laughs> no, no. I assumed he was, he was a member of my family. In other words, this could have happened to me. It's almost like saying, let me be the guy I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Let me be that young boy. Because I was a young boy at, at a time that I had no idea that I would become an actor or anything like what, you're, what you see. So we shot the last scene first where you will see that regardless of what, ha- what, what, I, what I did with um, 
uh, Gabriel, the the actor, and the, the part Sammy. Regardless of what I, regardless of what I did to him, the family is sitting there in abject relief. <laughs> <laughs> and the only uh, I remember, I remember um, uh, Michelle saying, "It wasn't so bad," <laughs> because, she, in other words, I I, I I was coming as a warning. Mm. She got a telephone call from her dead mother and warned and warned her that something is coming, and then she saw me. And realized that I was this member of a family who scared the hell out of her mother, and that's why that, that, that it looks like you know the boogeyman is coming through the door, <laughs> lock the door, and then they realize no, he's having breakfast with us <laughs> or dinner. As you mentioned, the uh, he has this background as a circus performer. How relevant was that for you? Did you do any research into that part of someone's life? Uh, no, no, no. Um, when I was a kid, I lived in Coney Island, so it was kind of like the background of my childhood. Mm. And so everything around me was not real. A, a lot of a lot of stuff around me growing up was not real. I, I, I lived in almost a fictional neighborhood, you know, because I always go, I always went over to where the amusement parks were. And young enough to be taken as, um, to, to question as to what, you know, what spirits are there that are, that are possible to be real. None, none. I had these sideshows of freaks. Right. These were the people <laughs> that I was introduced to. The sideshows of freaks, the, the 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 rides that 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 scared you. It was it was only about fear. I mean, kind of like a. Um, it's not a nice thing to say about about entertainment center called Coney Island, but they meant to scare the crap out of you. <laughs> Every ride, everything about that place. Right. Everything was I dare you. You know, I dare you to come out of this alive. <laughs> So if you want to put that into the character, do it because that's that's how I got there. Yeah, that's what that's what I made this guy from. He that's the circus he came from, oh. and also he was in the it was in the movies, mm. in the silent movies, or just as they turned um, a talkie. Uh, and and also he's just talking about himself. Mm. You know, he needed no introduction. He needed no goodbye. He just talked of himself to a boy to tell him that he has to recognize that. What's going to happen to him is he can't, will not be able to help himself. He'll have to be a director because that's the thing. That's the, he said, the drug within us, mm. right? Mm. But I love the idea that I said, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, look what this did. <laughs> I love that monologue that, as you said, uh, probably a lot of came from Tony. You and Tony are both creatures of the theater. So was that? familiar to you did it feel like a, a stage monologue in some ways uh one doesn't usually speak of monologues in, in movies right yeah i mean the the term the term yeah that's the term is usually applied to in plays i mean i think the stage is hard place right you can't say stop let's do it again you can't you can't pick a shot about how people can see you you can't do a close-up so your your responsibility is to try to, to get as 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 much belief out of an audience in a fake place that you can. Movies will take care of it. They'll put you in real places, right? The house is real. The things you're using are real. I remember my acting teacher said, um, uh, the third character is the audience. That's if you're working on stage. The only real thing is you. Wow. That's a job, you know? That's a tough job. Now, they give you a monologue. And you're going to be, and you're going, and and they're going to have to get into your head to see to see what you're talking about, you know, and how it feels and everything. And that's the job of the actor. Ooh, that's tough. That's tough. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that's what and that's what that's what it was, he was doing to me. You know, he was like, um, I have no idea why why he thought I was right for the part. I have no idea. None. He never told me. And you still don't. I, you know, I was. I didn't want to ask. <laughs> I thought he might have saw, he might have seen me in a terrible part one day, but it reminded him of this guy. You know what I mean? But I think he just leaned forward one day and he said, uh, "Independence Day." I went, "Oh, all right." That's really interesting. You mentioned no one really knew where Boris was from. How did you decide on the dialect you wanted to give him? Well, the strange thing is, he said you didn't have to have one. Uh, this is before I read the script, so I, so I did not know. I really did not know who Boris was going to be. It could, I mean, I thought when he said the guy who made it become a director, I thought it was going to be like some uh, family member who was a producer, or someone who was in the business, and someone who uh, knew him better than he knew himself. You know, like. Uh, uh, like uh, you know, a professional of some sort. I knew. I I just thought it was going to be a professional guy who said, "Do you know how good you are? Take it from me. You know, you you should really do this." That's before reading a word of the script. And then I read the script and I said, hey, "None of these people are that. Not my, I had nobody. I had nobody except this old fart who was going to come in and try to and 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 almost take him apart. You know, uh, as you said, uh, tornado." You know, there's, there's certain things in in this script that if uh, in this movie that if you see three times, you realize why they're there. And one of them is this thing called art. And uh, uh, Michelle summed it up the other day. Uh, we were in one of those Q and A's on stage, and she said the theme is it's it, it's in all of us. In other words, the theme of the movie, the thing that moves the movie from from character to character, and what they had to do either despite something or because of something was this nugget in them called art what that art did for them what it made them do let's put it this way right what made her leave her family uh boris makes this terrifying pronouncement about art tearing you apart did you find that that rang true for you no no every actor has his disaster story i can tell you that and i'm i'm not i'm not quite sure that they really like to retell it the disaster story about you know how they were fired or uh um, you know, how the great expectancy turned out to be uh, uh, a, 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 a great disappointment or something that happened to him while they were doing it, you know. Um, no, I didn't have that. I had the fear of it, but I didn't have it. Uh, you know, uh, one night I was on stage and I was I was actually the other studies, the lead of a, of a play, and, um, and uh, the guy gets laryngitis. Uh, and, uh, and the first act is over. I can hear him. I can hear his voice going. And I'm, I'm his understudy, and I'm going to have to do the whole part, very big part, very long part. And um, comes to me in my dressing room and said, oh, the, the stage manager comes to my dressing room and says, you're on. <laughs> Wait a minute. The audience just saw him. <laughs> How do you explain this? He said, it's the theater. You're on. You know, put on the clothes. And then the actor comes and says, it's all right. It's all right. I'll, I'll get through it. And I went, that could have been the most challenging thing that would ever have happened to me, right? shunted on in the middle of a performance that they just saw somebody else play and be him. You know, that would have been, I don't even understand why they would do it. And then I would just say, cancel, come back tomorrow. No, you got to do it. So I was saved. I was saved. Right. From that became the inspiration to do that part better than I ever thought I could do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I never get the chance to do it. Yeah. 
You have worked with so many incredible directors, uh, whether it's Robert Redford or the Safdie brothers or now Stephen. How did Stephen and his process and his approach compare to to all of these folks? Oh well, there is no there is no comparison. Um, Redford's first job, directing job, was what I did, and he'll and he'll admit to you that he didn't know too much about cameras. In fact, he he kind of said I didn't even I, I I wasn't directing from that point of view at all. He was directing from the uh, people's the story and what he would like to see happen, hoping that somebody else would film it well. Okay. I mean, you knew they were good. Uh, the Softy brothers are, are, are guys who like to throw things in the air. <laughs> that's fun. That's, that's a lot of fun because uh, they'll make you believe that you're in it. Even if you aren't, I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's, you'll find yourself in the, in the, the part that's their point of view. I'm sure this, when they got me, it was almost like, um, I was already in the movie before I started <laughs> <laughs> another relative, another relative. They couldn't even tell me who he was. <laughs> They just said his name. His name is this. That's, that's an awful name. He said, "Yeah, I know, I know but, but that's why." <laughs> okay, okay. Um, uh, what, what what do we do? So you got two guys talking at you, right? And and uh, I don't know. It's like uh, uh, it's, it's it's like throwing a you know a bunch of stuff at you and say, "Do one of those." <laughs> it was fun. It was true fun. I mean, I thought since it's only since it's movies, you can't make it up and come back tomorrow. You got to make it up and, and get shot today. You know what I mean? So small challenge. And, but 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 uh, Spielberg is whoa different. I mean, uh, you don't worry about how that thing's going to be shot. I mean, there's no way in which you can be aware of the mechanics of shooting uh, that movie. I mean, I, we had one camera in the room, and it was on a, on a. Uh, so that was the only thing that, that filmed us, right? Uh, I just thought. Uh, just keep talking until he says cut. All right. <laughs> not a bad approach. Now no, that's that's the key to the character writing. Right? It's not that he won't shut up, but it's he has to keep going mm. until until the boy realizes what he's talking about. And so he came even dangerous because he corners him. And uh, I thought, whoa, we better have a redeeming something here because I just don't want to destroy a, 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 a character. I, I I can't walk in. And um, and Stephen's sort of like he's not even care, he doesn't care about that because he wants it to have that effect. It's almost like. This is good script writing, right? We're not going to know how he got there. We're not going to know why he's doing what he's doing, but we all going to know it was okay. You know, they just watched him leave at the end and we shot the last scene first. Mm. So I didn't, so he already added it up for me to be able to come in. I didn't know. I didn't know why they said they had this, this lovely look on their face. It wasn't just relief. It was, wow, what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Lastly, uh, you're you're getting Oscar buzz for this role, um, and in the rarefied air of people who are nominated for one seed or one very brief performance at this stage in your career, um, what does that mean to you? Being in that conversation? Well, I'm old. I'm I'm older than all of those who did that. <laughs> so so uh, so you know you're not going to surprise me with anything, really. Uh, you know. Win, lose, or or or, or uh, be, be forgotten. It's not going to matter. Really, really, you know, my agent would constantly on me about that. He says, "Oh, by the way, you know what's going to happen to you?" I said, "Yes, another job. <laughs> You're going to get me another job." He, he, he looked at me and I said, "Better than this one." <laughs> this guy fell over on his on his heels. Of, I'm going to have to do what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that, if you want to know the true feeling? That that's the one I have. I'm, I I I couldn't get one iota about it in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 
too old, too old to think about that. <laughs> and uh, well, regardless of that, I uh, wish you luck this season. It's a tremendous performance, and uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you. Oh, well, Uncle Boris is such a fantastic character, and uh, I think a lot of us might have someone kind of like him in our lives. But uh, Maureen, speaking with Judd Hirsch, I mean, he's just incredible. This is his second nomination, his first being for Ordinary People. Uh, what 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 was your, your takeaway from that conversation? You know, to be honest, interviewing Judd Hirsch is a little bit like having a conversation with Uncle Boris. <laughs> he's just <laughs> this sort of quirky, offbeat a uh, guy who is just happy to be here. Yeah. I mean, he's just thrilled to be a part of the conversation. I don't think he expected at his age to to be in this position in his career, but he's certainly thrilled to find himself here. And it's been a delight just sort of watching him marvel at it um, since its premiere in Toronto, where he was a very gregarious guy yeah. on multiple panels, all the way through to this nomination now. I mean, he's, he's, he's quite the character and um, leaves you with a smile on your face, for sure. Yeah, well, and that character, um, as, as kind of a stern and odd as he is, he left me with a smile as well. So, uh, you know, job job well done there. All right. Well, Joey and Maureen, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Yes, thanks, Jared. Of course. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like what you're hearing here on The Awardist, you can follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW, on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We'll see you right back here next week.